just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to Speaking of Influence, the podcast about public speaking, presentation skills and tools of influence and persuasion with presentation skills expert Johnny Ball. Most online content creators seem to agree that live streaming is the future and definitely the way to go. If you have thought about live streaming and you'd like to give it a try, my recommendation is Restream.io. It's the service I use. And if you use the link in the description, you will get a $10 credit after you complete your first live stream. Welcome to the show. Today I have a guest with me who I know is going to be a lot of fun to talk to. I know this because she hosts the most hilarious podcast. I've had the pleasure of being a guest on her show. It's totally worth a listen. It's called Clowning Around. She is a speaker. She's a funny speaker as well. And she is on a mission to help people laugh and play and learn more. So please welcome to the show, Emma Stroud. Hello, John. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm really delighted to have you here. And and I had such fun being your guest on, on your show. It's a really entertaining podcast. So if any of my listeners uh, haven't checked that out before, definitely encourage you to go and take a listen. Thank you very much for the plug. And I think, you know, I loved our episode. So people that love you need to come and listen to that because it might be a different side. So yes, it was very cool. It, was very cool. it is. That was a, it was a real opportunity for me to talk about the stuff that I know about, which I, which I don't do quite so much on, on my own show, surprisingly enough. I, I like to give the spotlight to, to my guests yeah, as, yeah, much yeah. As, as much as possible. But yeah, it, what I really liked about it was that it was, it was lighthearted, but informative. And, and we had just a lot of fun talking about stuff that was quite serious on, on some levels or quite deep stuff uh, and we went in a, a lot of different directions which also was quite fascinating but you haven't you also recently had an achievement with your podcast oh yeah uh, thank you yes I, I i'm now in the top 50 in the uk in comedy interviews which is a massively competitive category because it's comedy and it's interviews and I don't know you know I'm sort of fluctuating but to get up there I was really chuffed and it just and more excitingly who knew I'm quite big in Singapore so currently in comedy interviews I'm number 22 in Singapore so you know this is the crazy beautiful world of podcasting though. Because, I hear it's you know, always good to be big in Singapore. I, I think so and, and I mean you know as somebody who is only five foot two being big anywhere is always a big achievement so I'm like woohoo made it! <laughs> Well, there you go. I I can only dream of uh, such dizzy heights myself. But that that's fantastic. Congratulations! It's it's big news for for your podcast. And you do more than just podcasting as well. You're you're a speaker. You do events. You do training. So tell us a, a bit more about what it is you do professionally, and and maybe your background about what led you there. Okay. Uh- I'm, I think in the last few years, it's sort of really evolved. And now I have a real sort of clarity, but I've, I've always been somewhere between business and performing. So I've had various different uh, businesses and work with big global organization and their senior leaders. And underneath all of the work that I've always done, it's always been about how can I help people in essence, be the best version of themselves. But I'm also a performer. So I've always done theater shows. I've done comedy improv for 20 years. Um, I'm a clown. And think sort of theatre clown when I say clown, you know, so from the clowning perspective, it's very much I'm the observer of people. And because I use humour, I get away with saying stuff that other people perhaps can't. And so where I'm at now is I, I really am on a mission to help the world laugh, think and play more. And everything that I do sort of fits under that banner. 
And I'm just launching the global movement of Laugh, Think, Play. And I do genuinely know it's going to go global. Um, My podcast is already on global, so I know that that's possible. Because I know from experience that if, if we laugh more as human beings, that's a good thing. If we think more, so we, and I'm, when I'm talking about, when I talk about thinking, it's everything from the personal development stuff. It's everything to meditation. It's everything about how can we show up better in the world. And then the bit that quite often gets left behind is the play. Now, of course, the way that we all play is different. The way that I play is, yes, doing comedy and doing impro and clowning. But for other people, play could be going fishing. It could be knitting. It could be art. I mean, there's, there's so many different ways of playing. And there's so much evidence that the more that we play and the more that we laugh, the more we open ourselves up to think differently and then behave differently, which then opens up choice and change. In a nutshell, that's that's what I'm doing. And, and it sort of manifests. So I do shows, a mastermind group for entrepreneurs. I speak internationally, obviously, from my house currently. I emcee big events. And then I... I write comedy for businesses as well. So I, all of the things that I do, although it might seem like I do quite a lot, it's all underneath that banner. So it's all about how can I make the world laugh, think and play more. Which is great. These are great things to work on. And, and, and I would say with that, you know, I, I was actually last night running a group coaching call and oh. on the call we were working on the topic of recreation and play. That was the theme for the call yesterday. And, and so some of these things were coming up, but what, what in your opinion is the effects of not having those things in your life? Well, I think especially, this has always been really important to me, but I think during COVID and, you know, and living as we've all been living, it's now, I think it's become even more important because when we don't, when we don't prioritize play, when we don't actually actively put it into our diaries and hope that it's going to happen, it's the thing that as adults we let drop. I'm reading this book at the moment, which is big in the States, called Humor Seriously. And they have this quote, which has just really stuck with me. Up until the age of 23, we laugh 300 times a day, minimum. So up until the age of 23, we laugh 300 times a day. Post the age of 23, we laugh 300 times a month. Something somewhere, human beings, has gone wrong. <laughs> it's like, no, we need to change that. And I think I'm a, I'm a massive advocate of mental well-being and mental health and really looking after it. And I know from my own journey, when I stop playing, when I stop exploring and being in that avenue, my mental well-being suffers. And I know that I'm not alone in that. You know, I've, I've hosted global events about mental health. I've spoken to various experts about it. And for me, when we don't play, when we don't allow ourselves into that space, we are actually stopping off the bit of us which will let, let all that beautiful thing happen in our brain chemistry. But more than that, it's just it's that thing of just being present and not worrying about what's going on in the world. Because if you're building a Lego thing or you're going fishing or you're, I don't know, kicking a football with your child or you're going for whatever you mean in play, when you're doing that, you are fully in that moment. And I think at the moment, especially because of how much time we're all spending on computers and Zoom calls and all of that stuff, it's so important that we put that in our diaries. I know that on some of my some of my coaching calls, I often refer to Brene Brown when when she talks about the idea of being more wholehearted. I think that was it, yep. some some part of her TED talk, and certainly in some of her books. And that play is one of the factors that she says is part of being more wholehearted, which is what she kind of noticed when she was sort of studying shame and uh, vulnerability yep. in people, that yep. uh, the people who didn't have so many issues with them were generally more, more wholehearted. And, and that the, the play and the creativity and the laughter were, was, a part, was a big part of that. And she recognized for herself that she wasn't really doing that and, and started introducing that back into her life and noticing those differences for it i mean it's it's great that people are talking about this well it's it's huge and i, and I think what, what what concerns me especially in the business world is that you know humor is sort of seen as you know that, that quite often people come to me and go em can you make me funny and i'm like hmm, don't know because depends you know there's there's a whole different mindset behind that but it always bothers me when somebody starts off a talk with a joke and then they dismiss the joke and they're like right okay now we'll get on to the serious stuff that always bothers me because in essence what that message is is like there's the flippant stuff and now I'm going to get to the heart of what I mean whereas for me and whenever I'm doing any of my gigs it's 
if I can make people really laugh, they are already open in a very different way. And then you can then bring in some really serious stuff. Mm. And for me, laughter shouldn't be seen as the as the sort of add-on or you know oh well we'll we'll do a we'll do a zoom coffee thing and we'll all chuckle and it's like why why can't we giggle and have some fun while we're doing really serious work because I'm all about outcomes you know I've worked with some of the biggest organizations in the world from Bloomberg to Barclaycard you know I've, I've worked with big guys and I know the stuff that I do really works but what is it that scares us about changing the way that we operate because somewhere on the line it was almost like we all took a serious pill and went to do work. We must be serious and we cannot smile and we definitely cannot laugh. Yeah. And I think it's fundamentally flawed. Yeah, we have this idea that in, in working environments, we have to be serious. Yeah. And that, that's, that you're, if you're being professional, you're being serious all the time. Yes. That, that, it's like, here's my professional mask. This yeah. is what I look like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no space in that for fun. There's no space in that for, for playfulness. Mm. And, and I, again, I don't really know where, where that has come from. I just think it's been maybe an attitude that has been instilled and perhaps there are reasons for it. You know, I, I sometimes look and read into things about social engineering, that mm. that it may be that there has, there has been a way of, uh, you know, that attitude has been done for, for reasons of more getting workers to work harder and, and creating a certain environment. But I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just something that evolved in itself over time. But nonetheless, we just have this idea that business has to be serious. But, you know, sometimes I, I've talked on the show a few times about this idea of this, this archetype of a business person and uh, you know, we, we generally think of it as being a, an old, older white man, right? But, mm-hmm. but it's not just that. I mean, we, we do have this archetype of business people are hard-nosed, hard, yeah. badass people who make tough decisions and don't care who they hurt. Uh, you know, I, I've been, uh, j- just at the moment, my, myself and my husband were watching Succession. I don't know if you've mm. seen Yeah, yeah, great show. But I mean, it, 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 that really highlights, that show really highlights these sorts of attitudes and the sort of business personas we're talking about. It's like, it's sociopathic. It's not emotional decisions. It's just like, oh, we care about money and power. That, that's all that matters. Yeah. And I think, and I think the interesting thing is that I do believe that entrepreneurs and are starting to change that. So not only culturally by creating very different um, setups, so non-hierarchical businesses, because I think we're all starting to realise, and especially with COVID, you know, suddenly it's like, well, we can all work from home. So I think it's put a bit of a speed dial in terms of cultures having to change. Mm. And what's becoming more and more apparent is that as the bigger brands are realizing that it's about the stories, it's about it's about truthfulness, it's about engagement, you know, and there's been a big shift by the big businesses during COVID to make sure that suddenly their CEOs become people. Suddenly you get emails from them versus, you know, just from the department. And the more and more smart businesses that I'm seeing are going, actually, how can we make sure that people are coming across as themselves not with that sort of professional mask on and I I mean you know the bonkers thing is you know as I sit here you know I'd I'd fallen into that as well you know years ago I ran a a learning and development company I had a theatre company at the same time and I I spoke about this on my TED talk I mean I remember I was invited to this big entrepreneurial event in the city and I put all of this business power on it and I went out and I was like well okay I better go and buy a suit I don't wear suits right so but I went and bought a suit I even bought kitten heels, which is ridiculous. I don't wear heels. I mean, completely mad. I even brought a handbag, right? And I walked in, and I, I've normally got a quiff, and as I still have now, and uh, I even flattened my hair because I was like, well, I better go in because this is a big event in the city. There's loads of successful people. And I'd been invited there because of the work we were doing. But yet somewhere I was like, I've got to play the game. And I walked in, and it was a real seismic moment for me because – I walked in and I disappeared and I don't very often feel like I disappear, but I put this whole mask on myself and went, mm, yeah. and, uh, and then I left and I remember sitting outside and I still smoked at the time. And I remember sitting outside having a cigarette and I remember going, I'm never doing that again because I have just fallen foul of the things that I tell people and help people not to do. So I get it and I understand, but it's all this whole thing about masks. And for me, how do we unmask? How can we be ourselves? And I'm not suggesting everybody has to suddenly become a comedian or a clown. In no way am I suggesting that. 
but it's how can you be really truthful of yourself so that you can well you can stand up and you can connect and you can be the same person whether you're standing up and doing a big gig or if you're standing and having a coffee with your mate yeah, yeah. from that to what i would call maybe the the ultimate philosophical perspective on all of this is that we we have to remind ourselves that none of this matters yeah that, that's ultimately it so if none of it really matters then why not have some fun why not play a little why not uh, take it a bit less seriously and lighten the load on ourselves because nearly all of the stress we end up experiencing in life comes from ourselves yeah uh, we, we put we put stress on ourselves we create that for ourselves we, we feel like it comes from external sources but it really comes from our thinking about those things because and, we put the power yeah. on it right so as you're saying you know we have those moments and we put the power and then suddenly it's like i need to be worried about it and you're right it's how do we how do we choose how, where we're putting our attention? And I really think that if we're really smart, we can put our attention on stuff that makes us feel good, that makes us giggle, that makes us laugh, that bring, brings us joy. And suddenly the thing that perhaps two weeks ago was, that was massively stressing, you just go, it doesn't matter. Because you're right, it doesn't. Yeah, you know, when, when I was when I was growing up, I used to love soap operas. <laughs> absolutely, right. I think well, it's because soap operas got to do this, but but I used to absolutely love soap operas. And my favourites when I was younger, this is how old I am, were Dynasty and Dallas in their the original ones, not the, the original ones, not the ones so, they've done since then. But certainly, I I also got into EastEnders when that first started, and uh, so again, I'm giving away my age, but uh, the, all all these kinds of things I, I loved it but only for a time at some point at some point I kind of recognized that they were they were all about you know drama overly dramatic especially some of the some of the UK soaps where, where it wasn't really very happy it's like all these things that happen in these people's lives it's like I, I hope nobody has lives that are that eventful with so many terrible things all the time but I, I think it did they sort of help in some way to create this expectation of drama in life and and even to some degree encouraging people to create drama where there isn't any and, and i see that play out a lot you know I see that play out on social media i, I don't yep. think it's just i don't think that's the only cause of it but i think it's certainly part of it that we do get very addicted to to drama and, and you know, even even with news media and things like that that's what makes it all more exciting because if you just report on facts and information that's yep. not really exciting it's the drama of stuff that makes it more interesting and interesting and exciting but we end up getting addicted to that but we also end up buying into the stories and and taking them super seriously and uh, we, we were chatting just before the show like we we're recording on the on the day after the u.s election where we still don't know who is going to win and yeah. aims sort of saying well regardless of what happens you know okay well one, one choice seems horrific and ter terrifying and the other choice doesn't seem that fantastic either but but better certainly better and, and yet regardless of what happens we still have to get on with our lives we still have to keep living our lives yeah and I think you know the world is a beautiful thing with technology you know the very fact that we're doing this and I'm sitting in London and you're in Spain and it's you know technology is is an extraordinary thing but there's also the downside of technology and there's a downside of this constant stream of information that isn't your own story and it isn't your own life. But sometimes it's very easy to believe that it is your own life because it's on your device. It's on your phone. You're looking at it and everything like that. And the more and more that I slow everything down and the more I sort of am very conscious about how it is that I'm choosing to show up, the more I realize it's like, what, what am I consuming? And does it make my heart sing? And does it fill me with joy? Because if it doesn't, it's like, so why am I choosing to put it in? Now, I don't live in some weird clown land where I'm not aware that there's really weird and horrible stuff going on. Yeah. But actually, there's only so much that I can ever influence and be in charge of. So therefore, surely it's better to go inwards and really work on me and then what, I, what it is that I'm doing, because that is my truth. And and the more that I sort of talk about those type of things and working with businesses across the world, the thing that we all really need to do is turn everything off more regularly and just check in with self, read a book, you know, actually just sort of disconnect so that you can then go, okay. And just remember that in the grand scheme of stuff, you know, a hundred years ago, you would know what was going on with your neighbor, but you wouldn't know what was going on in France or wherever else. Not saying it was better. It was just different just 
Yeah, we <laughs> so much access to information. Yeah, and uh, and now we we are almost addicted to the news cycle. You know, I, I had to try and encourage my parents to stop watching the twenty four hour news cycle because it was it was making them do, it was making them sad more than yeah, anything. Yeah, because it doesn't do it. It it does not do us any good. You know, and it's that thing of you know, get your little snippet of the news from somewhere that you trust. There you go, and then the rest of the day, crack on with your world. Because you know, especially with coronavirus, I think you know, I think we were all guilty to start off with of like, look at the news, how many deaths, how many people, da da da, and it's. For our small brains, it's too much. For it's too traumatic to constantly check in with it fully. So we've become desensitized to it. You know, just the fact that I just use that. Look at how many deaths in that way that I did is an example of how desensitized I am to that phrase because it's banded around every day. Oh, death rate's gone up by four hundred, by twenty. But these are people. But because of the news cycle, it's really easy to lose sight of that. And so again, it's that thing of. How can we make sure within our own worlds that we're creating joy and wonderment? Because that's what we can control. There's plenty of it to be had, you know, just pick some leaves in the autumn, you know. Yeah, we, we can't control what's going on in the world around us, but we can work to change and control our thoughts about it. Yep. And and that's really all we do have power over. The thing about what you really have power over is that, to, to some degree, your, your thoughts, even then not completely, but we can work to change our perspectives on things. We can readjust our focus because ultimately wherever you're putting your focus is, is what you're going to get more of in life. And if you're focused yeah. on all the, all the misery, all the pain, all the, all the bad stuff in the world, that's what you're going to be affected by the most. We rarely, you know, we often, we often think about what we put in our stomachs, but we don't often think about what we're consuming mm. with our eyes and our ears in, in terms of media. Yeah, in, in its in its various forms, that you know, that there are things that even my husband doesn't really understand this, but there are things that I won't watch on TV simply because they they may be something that just glorifies violence or glor- or makes makes gangsters look. Uh, you know, seem attractive or something like that, or, or yeah, serial yeah, yeah. killers and things like that. And it's like I, I won't, I, I just won't watch it because I don't think that is entertainment, and I don't want mm-hmm. to feed that stuff into my brain. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. That's my decision. That's my choice. But yeah. it's like, I am, a, I am, some degree at least, aware of what I'm feeding my mind on a re- regular daily basis. But I'm also aware of I don't just want to consume other people's information or content. You know that that one of the biggest changes for me in terms of how I think and and how things feel in life was when I started creating for yeah. myself as well. Yeah. Well, it's it's vitally important because I think you know there's we naturally are in a consumer world. You know, those of us that live in the West, we're we're surrounded by consumerism. It's encouraged. You know, it's all about getting more and spending more and accumulating wealth and accumulating stuff. And actually, you know, I'm a I'm a fairly spiritual soul. And actually, the the reality is is that you can have all the stuff in the world. And I've been lucky enough to work with some of the most outwardly successful people in the planet. You know, so we're talking CEOs of multi billion pound business. We're talking about entrepreneurs that outwardly have it all and by the time they find me it's generally because something's missing and they've accumulated all this wealth they've done amazingly they've sold businesses bought businesses done all of those things which from a external validation about what success looks like in the west predominantly they've ticked all the boxes but actually what they haven't allowed themselves to do because they've been so busy with that is they haven't allowed themselves to slow down and they haven't checked in to see what is it that really makes their heart sing And so many of them go, you know, but I miss my kids growing up. I didn't have time with them. Or if they chose not to have kids or they weren't in a relationship, they're like, I can't remember the last time that I picked up a paintbrush, you know, and all of these different things or whatever their drivers is. And for me, it's that thing of how do we let ourselves really hear our own inner wisdom? And loads of people talk about obviously sort of mindfulness and meditation with really good cause. You know, I I did a, a 10 day silent meditation retreat, which changed my life mainly because while I was there that's when I decided I was going to have a child but that's a whole other story and there is definitely something to be said in terms of how do you make sure that you are in a place of creating and not consumption it doesn't suddenly mean that everybody has to become an author or you have to become a playwright or a painter or anything like that but it's how do you make sure that you're really hearing your own voice and how do you make sure that you have checked in so that 
on all the conveyor belts of busyness that we all have because we're human and that's how we live in the West, do you ever give yourself that chance just to get off all the conveyor belts, check and go, do I like them? Are they running at the right pace? Or actually look over there, there's a whole field which doesn't even have any conveyor belts, for example. And that for me is is one of the key things and it's, it's something that's fundamentally changed for me over the last couple of years. It's like, let me focus on what's my what's my purpose and you know laughing play is a is a movement that's far bigger than me and you know and it's very new and it's very nebulous in its form right now but that's how I want to leave my legacy and it's it's here I'm just something that I just want to leave it and that's how I can serve the world mm-hmm. I know I'm very lucky because I found that but the reason that I found it is because I've work with people like you John you know I've worked with mastermind people I've had coaches I've had therapists and I think for anybody really questioning what's going on in their lives right now, which I think COVID has done for a lot of us, the biggest thing that I can say to you is, is get other people to ask you questions. Because no matter how smart you think you are and whether you think you can afford it or not afford it, you can afford it. Because if you find somebody and they cost you a tenner because they're learning how to be a coach, if you find somebody and they cost £100,000 because they're the best coach in the world, get somebody else to help you work out what it is that you really want to be doing so that you can then create in whatever way that manifests you know and that to me is kind of one of the most important things it's like invest in you by having smart people ask questions right yeah Yeah. i i sometimes sometimes come across people who who don't necessarily see the value of coaching and 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 this is a conversation we end up having with them as as much as we might be super organized it's like there's sometimes people have this idea of is it coaching is something very very nebulous and it and it can be or that it's very new agey and and it's just your coach is just gonna um take you down this sort of spiritual woo-woo path and which is again it can be it can that be. <laughs> but but, but the, ultimately it is about asking questions to me that's what coaching is about it's about having that person who who listens who listens yep. really present with you and is listening to what you're saying also listening to what you're not saying and to how you're saying it and, and then aiming to draw out from you what you really want or what you're saying and sometimes just by repeating back what mm-hmm. you've been saying or, or reflecting it back to the person you're not not actually necessarily giving them and hopefully you're not giving it to them because i i think if you give people the the answers and and certainly i get clients who come to me who want that they're like tell me what to do tell me the answers like that's not what this is about this is uh, you have the answers you have this within mm-hmm. My job is to help you pull that out. And to, although, to... although that being said, and I completely concur, my supervisor, who's been my coaching supervisor for about 10 years, and I've been coaching what for 20 odd years now, he did say something because I always had that, I'm never going to tell somebody what to do because we're about asking questions. And I'm so there with you. But Steve, who's the most amazing supervisor in the world, he, he literally went, no, but M, if somebody asks you three times, then they do actually want your opinion. And I remember that being that real sort of like, oh, and that's that bit when you shift from being coach to mentor yeah. and there's yeah. that different hats that you can play. But it's, yeah, and I, and I think it's that beautiful thing of, it's about allowing, isn't it? It's about allowing someone into your psyche. And I think it's really important to say, because I think people get really worried about coaching because coaching and, and therapy are two separate things, obviously. But quite often, especially within Europe, we only go and seek those things when we're in a process of change or crisis. Mm. And actually, for me, I'm a massive believer of like when everything's going really well, that's the best time to invest in either a coach or a therapist. And it doesn't necessarily mean just because you're going to have coaching doesn't necessarily mean that everything's going to change because it might actually just cement that all the choices that you made two years ago subconsciously are actually brilliant. So, you know, it's that thing about having the courage to go, right, I'm going to have those conversations. It doesn't necessarily mean your world's going to change. Because I think, I don't know if you get this, but sometimes people are a bit hesitant about coming because they're like, ah, but then if I do come to you, John, uh, my whole life could change. I don't know if I'm ready for that, you know, and there's all of that stuff as well, right? 
Yeah. Change, changing itself can make people uncomfortable. And uh, you know, what, what you're saying about sometimes helping people who, who are stuck, absolutely. You know, I'm not going to leave somebody who doesn't know what to do or is generally in the sort of, yeah. uh, I have no idea what to do next. I'm just going to leave them hanging. I, I know that there are some schools of coaching that, that would say, you know, you, you absolutely don't. Um, they have to, you can only ask questions as a coach. But, you know, I, I agree that it's sometimes it slips into a bit of mentoring sometimes it even slips into teaching and yep. uh, and psychology and philosophy and, and so many other things depending on what kind of coaching you do but but i would say you know for the, for the most part whilst you can give people a, a helping hand to do more than that can can be disempowering in certain situations to them whereas if they've actually come to you to learn a specific way of doing something that's a, that's a different strategy that's more that is more mentorship and it's like yep. well you are the expert and you're the one who's guiding them and holding their hand they still have to take the action um, yep. but that that is the nature of that kind of relationship but uh, there are elements of these in in, in and that definitely shows that it's a level of confidence isn't it because i think when you know, like when I look back at my younger self as my younger coach, I definitely was like, you know, I'd, I'd come prepared with my list of questions I was going to ask people and stuff because I was like, I'm going to be brilliant. I'm going to make sure I get this right. And here are my tools that I have learned in my toolkit bag. I will definitely use all of them. And now, you know, when I bro- rock up with somebody, I have a blank piece of paper and I go, hello. And depending, but that also is that thing of, you know, I have years and years of experience. And so I trust myself that I'll choose the right hat dependent on what that person shows up with. And quite often somebody that very much comes to me for a very specific challenge in their head, you know, quite often ends up being completely different in a couple of weeks, you know, but that's because that's because we're people, right. You know, and it's, you know, there's always going to be that organic sort of process. I, I think. Well, I think there, there are different uh, there are different schools, not just different schools of coaching. There are different types of people. There are there are people yeah. who like to work with a specific structure, yeah. and and they like to have everything ordered and organised. And, and like you say, a list of questions and like, let's go through this. And, it, and it's kind of a form formulaic. It's a it's a formula process that doesn't appeal to me uh, as a coach or as a coachee i'm much more of an intuitive coach uh, yeah. i have to admit oh, some uh, a few times over the years of over my many years of coaching that hasn't always worked out but but as you get more experienced you do start to know where to go and to me the coaching sessions are generally client driven it's like well how's this coaching system going to go well that is ultimately going to depend on you. I don't think uh, I could ever say that any two coaching sessions are ever the same. No. Uh, and and that uh, I probably coach every single client a little bit differently. Based, of course, because they're different, them. you know, yeah. and, so you're sh- and also you're, you know, and I think that's what's so beautiful about that interaction on a one-to-one level or in a group coaching session is that, you know, they're going to spark different things within you. They're going to, you know, and I, I think that's one of the, that's one of the magical things because you might think, and you know, and I used to do this, you know, it's like, okay, well, this is, this is where John's at. And then next session he'll be there. And then suddenly, you know, you rock up and you've had a major win or a major crisis. So everything that I think, so every time you show up in a coaching session, you've just got to be present. Like you said, you just got to be fully present, really listen, and then trust that you've got the right skill set that will then guide them because there's a reason why that person has found you and vice versa, you know? And ultimately that's what takes time to, to sort of build that you know I, I think I was having a conversation with with someone who's asking about becoming a coach recently and uh, and I say the same thing I often say that initially my early days of of coaching I was only ever as good as my last client that that's what it felt like so if I had if the coaching session went well I was riding a high thinking oh great right. this is this is the life for me this is clearly <laughs> I've chosen the right career path and uh, and this is exactly <laughs> what I meant to be doing and, and then what, certainly earlier on in my career, I was sometimes had some really tough clients. I, I yeah. wasn't selecting my clients. They were being supplied to me. And right. so some, so it wasn't always a good fit. And, yeah. and so I had some really difficult people sometimes and would come off those calls thinking, oh, maybe coaching isn't for me or maybe I'm not yeah. so good at it. And so it was a real roller coaster of, am I actually any good at this? Is this what I'm saying? And it, I would honestly say that's one of the things that took time for me to really sort of start to figure out. Well, uh, I get to a point where I knew what I was doing and had enough confidence in myself and my own abilities to say, I I am good at this and I can do this. I just have to accept 
I'm not the right coach for everybody. <laughs> it's like no, there are some people. We never will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also think when, when we, you know, sometimes when, you know, you, if you are working with people that have come from an organization and so the organization is funding it, those first couple of sessions, there's always a, more of a reticence than somebody that's already come to you because they found you, John. You know, it's, and I think there's always that challenge of, when someone's being told by the people that they work for, you're going to get a coach. I think naturally everyone's like, so what have I done wrong? Why do I need coaching? I mean, because I think we go into fear because of how coaching and therapy is still framed in the majority of the West. It's like, it's seen as a remedial thing or you've got to fix something or make something better. Whereas actually, sometimes it can be as simple as, no, we want to give you some space so that you can think about your next steps. But if you, you can't do that internally, so let's get somebody external. But, you know, and that's the challenge, I think, when you're, when you're working with people within an organisation. From your personal opinion, mm. which, which do you find most effective or enjoyable, one-to-one or group work? I think they, not to sound like a politician, I think they both really have their places. I think there are certain challenges that as individuals we have and I know I'm the, I'm the same with this I think there are certain challenges where you need to know that you are only being heard by one person that you trust and that you are being held by that person as you process whatever is your challenge and I think there are certain places no matter how safe a group can be and I, I love groups I think they're really important but I think when you're dealing with the more complex vulnerabilities of leadership or the complex vulnerabilities of sharing your stories which is kind of one of the areas that I really specialize in I think having somebody that is only there for you at that point is really important group coaching I think for me is one of the most exciting and innovative ways that us as human beings can work together especially when the person that might have been the person to put a group together does not say that they have no ego so they're not coming with all of the answers because for me when there's group coaching when there's almost like you know here's the leader there's the facilitator they're going to tell us everything I think that massively underestimates Charlie that's my dog that just barked there he's a new dog so he still has to sit near me he likes to be heard so for me it's that I think when you get a group together that's really listening and supporting each other and then the facilitator or the coach is there to hold the space and to move things along, that's when I can think that real magic happens. So for me, I, I, I get a different buzz. I mean, you know, as you can tell by, you know, what I, what you know about me in terms of podcasting and theatre and comedy, I get different buzzes from different things and I could never do just one thing because my, my, Number seven on the Enneagram would get really bored. I like, I'm a bit like Peter Pan. I like flying around the place going, woo, new thing, woo, new thing. <laughs> I, I, I agree. I, I would give a very similar answer if, if I was you. Asked that Thank well. goodness that we concur. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I absolutely love group work and, and, and I would really never want to stop doing that. Uh, and sometimes, you know, the, there's a lot of power in the group as well, you know, the power of the mastermind, the sharing, the camaraderie but there are also those times where people just don't want to open up so fully to a whole group of people that that one-to-one coaching can allow people to do and and i love both i find a lot of value in in, in both you know, the the only the only real difference for me is like group coaching is a, a much more efficient way to leverage my time but that's that's about it yeah yeah and i think you know as my sort of coaching practice and my businesses have evolved you know i've i've realized that on a one to one basis i only i only actually work with a very few people now because of that very reason and so i have to make sure that i'm definitely the right fit and you know i'm i'm at a place where you know i'm fairly sought after as as a coach now which is great and so i i make sure that i believe i'm the right fit and if i think i'm not 100 sure then i i've got amazing people that i know that i will then go no i think you should go and meet these people and stuff because because there is only so much time and coaching on a one-to-one basis is a beautiful thing but for me it's i'd rather do less of it at a higher value in terms of really working with the people that really make my heart sing and it's something that you know I worked on with my coach she was like let's create your 10 out of 10 client so what does your client really look like and who is it that you really want to be working with and that was a big shift in my coaching practice because it made me go oh yeah I can choose and that within itself is a very empowering 
fifth because then I know that I'm serving the right people in the right way so everybody's winning you know yeah that's one of the things that has made the biggest difference for me in my own private coaching practice as well after years of sort of very generalist coaching through a through a coaching company moving yeah. Sort of private work and recognizing, yeah, I can actually work with people on very specific things. I say, you know, pretty much what I do is more now is more training than coaching. What individually outside, but I but I still do private coaching through through a coaching company, and I still and I still love it. But Mm. I still know who I'm not gonna who I'm not gonna work well with, or if someone has a a result that they're going for, as I would say, actually, there's a better coach than me for you to work on that with, uh, because that's that's not an area of speciality and i have the like yourself have the network that i can uh, recommend these people to and i'd much rather do that than just oh hugely yeah. hugely and i mean sometimes it does so happen i mean there was somebody that you know she's she spoke about this on stage i'm not breaking any confidentiality but there was somebody who was like i really want to work with you em and i was like no no i'm not the right person because we're talking about business strategy and stuff like that not my zone of genius and uh, so I passed her to somebody that I know is amazing. She went, she sort of came back and she was like, yeah, she was great, but um, I still want to work with you. And I was like, no, no, passed her over to someone else. And she was like, yeah, no, no, she was great and stuff. And she was like, yep, still want to work with you. And I was like, no, no, another two times. And eventually she ended up becoming one of my clients. And she just was like, you were right, though. I needed to go through those other people to be at a place where I could work with you with what it is that you do because they gave her a different foundation that I couldn't have given her and stuff so you know it's a it's a it's a beautiful thing when the when both when all parties are winning then there's there's only more winning and there's only more kind of joy and success right yeah a big part of what you do is, is performance and certainly yes. public speaking is a, is a significant part of that and yeah. what was your path to to taking the stage um I mean, I was, I was, I trained in theatre. So when I went to university, I sort of had this option of either going to do business studies or do theatre. And I snuck in theatre as my number six on UCAS, which is the university thing in the UK. And it honestly, it all came from, I, when I was 15, I injured my back. And so I couldn't play sport. And I was, I was a uh, national standard at one sport and county at quite a few others. And then I got this lead comic role in, in the school play. And I suddenly went, this is nice. (laughs) I like this. And suddenly I was standing up and I was getting standing ovations for this comic role that I played. Admittedly, the rest of the play was really depressing. So I think it was quite easy for me to shine because I was the only light relief in this whole show. And I just went, this is good. And then from that moment forward, then I thought, you know, and then I ended up being a professional actor. So I went to drama school and I always... I've always loved the interaction with an audience. So I was a DJ. I used to host racing nights, which is like a horse racing thing. So I've always loved that interaction. And, and I think I learned my stripes in the improvisation world. So I've done impro for 20 plus years. God, I'm getting old, 25 years now. And I've always loved how do I engage with an audience? And then because I ended up setting up my own theatre company, so I think I was always destined to be an entrepreneur in one way or another, it was the most logical place where I can go and I can share sort of business expertise, business knowledge, but I can do it in a way that perhaps not everybody else can do. And, and so that's kind of how it all sort of happened. So I started getting some speaking gigs and then because I was good, I then got more speaking gigs. And then gradually before I knew it, you know, I'm represented by two of the biggest speaking agencies in the country. And for me, it's the... I love going and getting, in particular, when you go and do a business talk, you know, everyone else there, you know, go back to what we were saying earlier, it's, it's a business event. We're going to be very businessy. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. When you suddenly you change the dynamic, not for the sake of it, but you're changing it because everybody is still people. And I think sometimes we forget that and we get so bombarded with these, with data and graphs, which happens. But for me, it's like, how can you use storytelling? How can you use humor? How can you use impro? and impart stuff that still has real business knowledge and so I just kind of developed it and honestly I, I think being a professional speaker sort of happened by accident but it was probably an inevitable accident and then I and I still perform so I, I did this year I should have obviously COVID I should have been touring my current one woman show I did it off West End as a preview so I still very much I am a professional performer I am an actor you know it's my own shows that I write I you know I you know I kind of co-create and stuff and so for me, when I do that, I then take the skills from that and then I put them into the world of business. And so it's kind of mixing both. So, 
Yeah, and I and I love them both, you know, because it's all about audiences. And in lockdown, weirdly, I've done two of my biggest ever gigs in terms of comedy, which has been broadcast to thousands of people from my living room. Fantastic. So, <laughs> the show is more of a comedy stand-up kind of thing. Yeah, yeah it, it's theatre comedy. So it's a mixture of clowning and it's autobiographical. So this show is it's called Me M, and it's an autobiographical show. So it's all about my own journey with my own mental health about relationships it's about how do I now show up as all of Emma considering I had quite a traumatic upbringing and for me that show which I'm now in the process of re-scripting because I'm actually going to be doing it as an immersive theatre event as part of Mental Health Week in May and so we're using audio technology it gets a bit geeky but we're using audio technology so that in essence rather than just feeling like you're watching me in a theatre and that doesn't really work via the wonders of the internet. When you put headphones on and you use audio technology, it will feel like I'm talking into your ears, which instantly changes it. And for me, one of my big drivers is how I can bring theatre into the world of business. And I did this show with a Q&A at Barclays pre-lockdown, so in Canary Wharf in their headquarters. I had 200 odd people in their main auditorium, and me doing this show. And then at the end of the show, I then do a Q&A and it's all about mental health. How do we show up? How do we make positive changes? And so for me, that's, again, with the laugh, think, play, you know, it makes people laugh and then it also makes them think. And for me, me doing that using theatre and then taking it into business worlds is what I get really excited about. Yeah. Yeah. And doing something like that is, is really exposing who you are to, to the world yeah. I mean, that's a that's a high level of vulnerability to to put yourself out there like that and, and i think that's one of the things that uh, you know people often think that they want to be famous you know i think we've even got the in the uk there's very much a culture of it you know I, i've encountered many times you know, kids who like you ask them what they want to be that they want to be a footballer they want to be on britain's got talent or something like that yeah. but they want to be famous and they think that's that is the career path for them and in very few cases, that's the truth. But but you know, for those who, even for those who it is, even those who end up going down that path, I think what people lose track of is is that you have to be prepared for what comes what comes with that, and and that means that you're you are going to be very visible. And so I, I think and I think that's what a lot of people are scared of, and why why maybe more people don't put themselves onto a platform or, or, or talk more about themselves, what's going on in their lives in whatever for, way they do it is that visibility thing, because you have to be prepared for that. Uh, and to me, that is part of the, this is why the, the reasons why you do these things have to be bigger than just, I want to be famous or I want to be rich or something like that. It has to be more than that. To me, yeah. it has to be about service it has to be about giving something that yeah. something that is bigger than you otherwise you know when, when all that stuff starts to really get difficult things can fall apart if you don't have something to pull you through past the difficult yeah. times past the challenges yeah completely and I mean you know I, I'm very blessed I've got an amazing co-creator and this is my this is my second one woman show and as I've developed and gone through my own therapeutic process and my own coaching practice on on me you know there is a thing of this is now this is my path because I've always been a performer and I love the the best sort of stuff right now for me to talk about is how I've ended up where I'm at. And this will be, you know, and I've I've kind of said this out for this will be my last autobiographical show, you know, and I, I talk about, you know, that I was suicidal and I was standing on the edge of a platform and I, you know, and I got to that place, you know, and I, you know, my dad died when I was young and I talk about a really challenging relationship that I had and other experiences. But for me, how could I possibly expect other people to have the courage to unmask themselves and to be who they are if I'm not doing it in the most authentic way for me? And I'm in no way do I ever say to anybody, you have to become a performer and write a one woman show and go and do shows at the West End and then tour it and do whatever. I'm not suggesting that. But for me, if I can share my story in a way that feels truthful and the way that is the best way that I know how, and whatever judgment other people might have, that's that's theirs. This is just the way, best way I know how. Um, then that's how I can serve. And when I did the particular gig in Barclays, we were meant to do, the Q&A was meant to go on for 30 minutes. And this was in the evening. And people have been at work all day, and they normally all want to get home, right? And we ended up staying for about an hour and 15 minutes because it had opened up so many doors in terms of thoughts because I had shared my story in the way that I chose to share it. 
And for me, that's kind of underpins everything that I'm doing with Laugh, Think, Play. Because I'm like, if I, by doing that and by going, this is me, this is how I've ended up, this is my journey. I mean, there's a phrase that we use all the way through the show, which is called look at me. And there's a couple of mirrors and we, we use that phrase a lot and it repeats. And then just at the end, I use the phrase, look at you. And it's this just this thing of just that moment. And for me, there's that thing about how how can we possibly connect with each other more on a human level? And for me, the, the only way that I know how is by making people laugh and think. And I happen to play. You, you mentioned earlier about taking off these masks that we that we sometimes have, and that really is like you you taking off all the masks and and you know at least emotionally exposing yourself in the in the best possible way. But in doing so, you are also giving people something to think about, but also giving them permission to to start doing the same. And that to me is you know that if if I had affected one person, so I mean I did a sellout run run just on the West End. And we actually asked for feedback so that people would write down what do they think because it was previews, right? And universally, it was like, you've made me think, you've opened up this, this was really brave, I wish it was longer, you're funny, blah, 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 blah. It's really nice things. But universally, and I just was like, well, if I touch one person so that they have the courage to open the door to really look at who they are, then my job has been done. And that for me, and then doing that then at Barclays, and then as I say, next year, um, I'm going to do this as part of Mental Health Week. What the beautiful world of COVID has put a speed dial on for me is how can I utilise technology so that I can see even more people, which is an amazing thing, because now my show can be seen by potentially tens of thousands of people and then do the Q&A. And that to me is what was really exciting. And not because, like you say, I've got no desire to be famous. I've, I've got a fairly good following, but that within itself is is just a whole game and a whole load of noise anyway for me it's like how can i go right i want my work to be seen by as many people not because it's about me so because it's about them and i just happen to be the one that tells the story and you know it's taken me a long time to get to that place where i'm comfortable telling my story of my past and my upbringing but that's the you know that goes full circle of what we said that's because i've done lots of work on myself yeah much like yourself i have i have zero desire to be famous but i have to uh, at least made the deal with myself i'm willing to be not not i don't know if i'm going to be super famous i'm sure but i'm willing to be more well known for the benefit of the things that i want to help people with you know it's like yeah, I, it's, and people feel it. it's a and sacrifice it. rather than a benefit yeah and people feel it and that's why your podcast is doing well and that's why because people feel it because it's not ego-led you know I spend a lot of the time in in the clowning world and the whole thing about the clowning world is that as I understand it is that we meet everything with kindness and there's always something beautiful to be seen in everybody and as a result there's always that humility and an audience always knows more than I do because of course they do everybody knows what their drivers are and what makes them tick far more than I do so all I can do is just, you know, show up and be the best me, right? Yeah, so that's something I wanted to ask you about, actually. Uh, uh, principles of clowning. So that, so those would be some, some of the principles. Are there, are there others? Yeah, I think fundamentally, I mean, there, there's, different, there's different ways that clowning is approached. And I, you know, as I alluded to, my sense of clowning is very much the theatre clown. So I think sort of Shakespearean fool or the court jester. So it's that side, not the kind of scary ones that are sort of manipulated by it and, and kids clowns and things like that mm -hmm. and for me underneath at the heart there's, there's this beautiful thing that one of my teachers de castro talks about which is the clowning state and the clowning state in essence is it's never about us becoming children again but it's about us re re-engaging with our childlike self and because it's childlike because when you're with your kid and as I'm sitting here in case any of your listeners and viewers are watching I am sitting in my child's bedroom which is why I've got maps of the world behind me when you're younger you're fully present and everything has an interest you know and if you kind of look at three or four year olds everything is fascinating which is why lots of adults go ah, look you know everything is interesting because you tangibly want to feel it you want to touch it and a room can be unbelievably exciting Whereas as adults, we come into a coffee shop and we sit down and it's like there's a, there's a place to sit. And what clowning really en enables us to do is to re-enter that state where suddenly you fully see stuff. 
And you can see it for the first time, even if you've been in that place hundreds of times before. And so there's this beautiful principle for me, which is like, it's about an allowing. It's about being fully present at such a high state. So even more heightened than when you're in a coaching thing, it's even more than that. And for me, it, it enables, so I've got, I've got three clowns that I'm aware of so far that are parts of me, obviously. So I've got Orange, who is in my current show that I was just talking about. And and Orange is the most kind, the most joyful part of me. And Orange is very enthusiastic about everything. So like a kind of really excited and very, very, very happy. And just, just a really joyful. And Orange is actually helping me write my book that's about to come out next year, which is great. And then I've got Barbara, who's another... I met Barbara. You, you met Barbara. Yeah, Barbara is from up north. And quite a powerhouse and Barbara's been with me for years and she she's very happy to be on the podcast letting everybody know what's going on in her world and just basically subverts whatever wise people tell me and then I've got my 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 last clown which is the lovely Frank um, and Frank is just the sort of cockney guys who tries really hard but everything goes just a little bit wrong and these three clowns these three characters I think you know if you kind of reference mrs merton is quite a good reference there's a character that is very clownesque because clowns by their very nature you know we are we're truth tellers you know we see the truth and we tell the truth and it comes from a place of kindness and actually when you think about clowning from that perspective suddenly it's like oh and i learned recently in west africa clowns are revered higher than the high priestesses within villages and it's normally a woman that is the clown and the clown will be the one that will tell the truth about what's been going on in all the different villages and I just learned this I was like wow and I think clowns by their very nature when they're when they come from the perspective I'm talking of can do extraordinary stuff so there's there's an organization called clowns without borders that works with the UN and they go into refugee camps now originally they went into refugee camps to go and work with the kids because they can do it, obviously, no language and everything like that. And within two weeks of going to the first refugee camp as a, as a kind of test, tester one, it became really clear it wasn't the kids because kids, wherever they are, will find a way of play. It was the adults that needed the clowns because it was the adults that actually needed to have that light, to have that joy, living through probably some of the shittiest times of their lives suddenly having this clown to come in and truth tell, but to bring some moments because there would be, I remember talking to one of, the, one of the clowns who was in this, and she just said, you know, you'd suddenly see that there was just this, this tiny plant that was growing in this place where no one else had grown. But because you're a clown, suddenly the whole beauty, literally this plant became 15 minutes of this entire thing. And the whole adults were all just completely clapping and applauding because they hadn't noticed that even when there was all of this horror going on, there's still beauty. And I think for me, that's one of the things that I love about clowns because clowns bring hope. Mm. Clowns bring joy. Why would I not possibly want to play in that world? <laughs> that's really lovely. Uh, I, I had uh, I was lucky enough to have uh, a lady called Jessica Breitenfeld on as a guest a while back, and she's also clowning, different style of clowning. But she was talking about going into hospitals and and, and similarly about how you know they go into primarily to entertain the kids, but ultimately yep. it's, it's, it's the biggest benefit is often to the families, to the parents of, of the kids who are often terminally ill in in, in hospitals and being treated or, or certainly very seriously ill. That you know, the whole family needs that, and uh, yeah, very very vital is it's mostly the grown-ups who need to learn to to laugh and, and have fun but it's a, it's a really beautiful thing you shared uh, and so yeah it's uh it's, it's inspiring maybe maybe someone is listening to this and thinking that they want to get into clowning themselves from what you've said mm. where would they start well if they're in the uk the place that i can't recommend enough would be the why not institute and that's run by one of my most amazing teachers, uh, a woman called De Castro. And the Why Not Institute is a place where she does some things for some people that have got no clowning experience, that have never done it. And she will, if you've got a certain type of mindset, she will work with you. And if she doesn't want to work with you, she'll be able to point you in the right direction of other places. So I think within the UK, that's the place to go to. Outside of the UK, I mean, this is this like everything. If you just want to go and dip in, there will be some clowns that will be doing just very open courses. It doesn't mean that you're then going to become a professional clown and a theatre performer and do cabarets and stuff like that. But I think just allowing yourself just to go and do a couple of drop-ins, whether it's clowning or whether it's improvisation, 
both of which will massively encourage that element of play. And I think impro is trained and taught a lot more around the world. So there's more places where you can get to go and do impro, but underneath impro there are some very there are some parallels with clowning so within the uk there and if you if you're not within the uk then uh, drop me a note and i will find out some other places there you go yeah that's actually great now in my in my show i've been running a series uh on humor in presentations particularly because you know i you know my my show is called speaking of influence so it's all about public speaking we talk about the tools of influence and persuasion and and all sorts of things around that as well but you know when i was when i was on your show we were just talking about things like rob cialdini and and other people who talk uh, and teach about tools of influence and persuasion very few people talk about humor talk about comedy as a tool of influence and a tool of persuasion but it is and to me it's one of the most powerful ones that that's out there it has such a big effect on us it allows us to to digest or understand or deal with and um, mm. sometimes very difficult subjects or to get through some type of times or comprehend uh, something that might otherwise be a bit difficult to get your head around is that but certainly also does a very good job of holding up the mirror to to people and and saying you know this this is what's going on and uh, isn't this crazy isn't this silly uh maybe we should do something about that (laughs) well there's a reason why you know there's a reason when you think about the drama masks there's a reason why it's tragedy and comedy right they go hand in hand and i think quite often as humans like we said you know with with everything that's going on in the world it's quite easy to focus on the tragedy and when you think about you know i can say this i'm a brit right us brits do death really badly like we don't deal with it well we don't talk about it we don't do grief as a process well in any way shape or form but what will happen is that people will either generally in the in the uk we'll get very drunk at a funeral because that seems appropriate and then we will laugh and people will laugh at funerals because they don't know what else to do and i think when you're thinking about humor and you're thinking about tricky times whether that's in business or in life and everything like that there's always both sides to the coin but yet there's a reticence I think sometimes about allowing the laugh and again for me whenever I'm working with anybody it's like you have to find your own joy you have to find your own the own way of kind of owning what it is and if you're naturally somebody that is a storyteller that is the raconteur in your group of friends then you will probably naturally go and do that when you're doing presentations if you are naturally somebody that's quite quiet that has a dry sense of humor who will only say something once in a blue moon with a kind of wit that's just delivered in a different way that's exactly how you need to go and do your talks and your presentations because it's about playing to you and your strength not trying you know when somebody uh ask me can I be funny I always kind of go well I don't know are you funny and they're like not really and I'm like probably not then (laughs) you know because it's that thing of if you know of course you can learn the skills and of course you can learn how you can get somebody really smart to write you something but if you are not natural if you do not view yourself as naturally funny you probably need to go and take two other steps back and go and do some impro and open up that play because there's a thing in your head that tells you you're not funny you know and I've worked with the straightest straightest people who are like i'm a financial director of course i can't be funny i have to do financial updates and i'm like but are you funny when you're at home occasionally like yeah i'm actually very funny and i'm like cool then we've got stuff to work with whereas there's others like but i can't do that at work why not when did that become a rule which goes back to the whole thing of like so how do we make sure that we allow ourselves to be our full selves at work as well as when we're at home yeah, it's kind of, it takes us uh, full full circle there, really. Exactly. It's almost like you know what you're doing, John. It's like, you know, you managed to kind of navigate this whole conversation to a full circle. You should host a podcast or something. I've been thinking about it. Yeah, I think you should do it. I think you should do it. Yeah, yeah. I just don't think anyone's going to listen to it. That's it. Oh, <laughs> uh, we know that's not true. It's fine. <laughs> we know that's not true. Uh, but look, I mean, I, I would love to, to maybe in the future have a chat with you more about storytelling as well. But, but, uh, mm. but I, I do not want to take up too much of your time today because it's been such a wonderful conversation that has i think gone naturally full circle and and want to sort of bring things bring things to an end for this conversation but one thing i do like to ask my guests and Mm. you before i do that actually you said you were working on a book so what is the book that you're working on so my book that is currently being edited (laughs) so it'll be out end of january is called lessons from a clown what the clown taught the business coach and how it will change your life. 
Great. So, so by the time this show goes out, yep. <laughs> that book will be available and we'll make sure that there's a, a link to that in the show notes, which is fantastic. Great. So I do also like to ask my guests for a book recommendation that yep. could be your own book or it could be someone else's book. It could be fiction. It could be nonfiction, something that you really like, something that's relevant to what we talked about. Entirely up to you. But what would your recommendation be? A book that has stuck with me this year, and I, I read a lot of different things and listen to a lot, but this book really stuck with me is, and it's an old one, it's called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. And if you've not read it, just read it. It's, And he's got, if you like Audible, he's got a brilliant voice. And so hearing him read it is, yeah, it's really, it got underneath my DNA and it stayed with me. And I think what he talks about is absolutely brilliant So that book. And, and making a, a big leap might be just the thing that some people who are thinking about feeling a bit inspired or interested in what we've been talking about today might be ready to do. So a great recommendation. I, I do also like to ask my guests just to give some some closing thoughts, maybe a call to actions, words of inspiration, or just something that's on your mind as we wrap up our call for today. I think if there's anything that I really believe that is massively important, it's allowing allow yourself at least half an hour a week where you are thinking about you and you turn everything else off and you get a piece of paper and a pen or a notebook and you just jot down where you're at and I think when you do that and you start in that very baby step way of half an hour I think that's when stuff naturally starts to shift and I think right now it's so important that you diarize, and I mean diarize, that time where you are only focused on you. And I know for a fact that that will make a massive difference. I think that's a perfect place to bring what has been a delightful and thoroughly enjoyable conversation to a close. And it just remains for me to say, Emma Stroud, thank you so much for being my guest on Speaking of Influence. Thanks, John. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure you subscribe. Don't miss any upcoming episodes. Whilst you're here, pop over to presentinfluence.com and grab yourself a free copy of the Last Minute Presentation Checklist. If you enjoyed this show, you're not going to want to miss next week where I'll be bringing you two shows with voice coaches. First of all, the amazing and talented Ambika Devi will be giving us some very holistic exercises to be looking after our voice and taking care of our instruments for presenting. And then a chat with professional voice coach DL Hanna where she gives us some great practical advice for helping to find the nuances and joys and highs and lows in our voice both fantastic episodes lots of fun really great information don't miss it see you next time